Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Ohl. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very special guest is Lylan Masterman, a big shot VC from New York. How about that, Lylan? Do you like that uh, intro? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, Scott, whatever works for you. Welcome, man. We've been friends for a long time. It's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, It's a pleasure. Well, maybe you can retrace your career. I was, by the way, I'm the one who labeled you as the big shot VC. That wasn't how you wanted to be introduced. So that we were not at all. Uh, But maybe you can introduce uh, your career and, and, you know, your perspective on the VC market for the audience. Yeah. So my career started academically. I was a computer science and math guy from the University of Waterloo through the Waterloo co-op system. I did six co-ops like uh, most students do there. My fourth one was at IBM on a product now called Eclipse. Back then it was called Visual Age for Java. Then I went down to California for Cypress Semiconductors and then Microsoft Web TV. I continued with Microsoft Research. Then I moved to Redmond to be part of the team that built the first version of .NET and Visual Studio.NET at Microsoft. It was a tremendous legendary launch of a software product that's still used by many people today. I was employee number 123629, literally. And that felt like a prison cell number. And so um, once the economy started to bounce back in, in 0203, I left Microsoft to go to a startup called Ask Me. It was an em- enterprise employee knowledge management platform. I like to compare it as the precursor to Yammer, which is the precursor to Slack. Yeah, it actually Employees is. sharing knowledge yeah. with each other. Yeah. The thing is, in 0203, the world didn't know about the freemium business model. So we were going to companies and trying to charge, let's say, $400 a head for our software. That doesn't work. So that didn't work so well back then. It doesn't even work that well right now. right? You have to let people try and fall in love with your product first. And so we boomed. We got a lot of awards. We won a Cody Award for Most Promising Company. And back then, Cody Award was the top tier of awards you could get. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's back (laughs) in the day. But awards and revenue are two drastically different things. Yes. And so when Ask Me started to have to do uh, major, major cuts, I think it was part of the fifth or the sixth round of layoffs, something like that. Some of the some of my colleagues who had been cut before me had gone on to some other company that I'd never heard of at the time. Uh, well, okay. And the company the company was called Aquantive and specifically oh, yeah. the Atlas division of Aquantive. Yeah. 
I had five of the best years of my career uh, or the early part of my career there. I headed up multiple product lines simultaneously, along with internationalization, along with user experience. I was too young and dumb at the time to appreciate that um, the senior management there paid to have the godfathers of Agile. The people who wrote the original Agile manifest, right? They, They came in and trained us in person. So Ken Schwaber and Ron Jeffries, Ron for extreme programming, Ron would come in and he'd spend an entire week with each little team within Atlas. So he spent an entire week just with my little team. Then he'd go and he spent another week with another little team and so on and so forth. And then he came back six months later, sat with us again to tell us where we had improved and, and where we still had some room for improvement. Jim Shore trained us. like We had the legends of Agile train us. So that was a fantastic training, great experience about what it takes to really scale a business from the inside, from the weeds. Yeah. Then we got acquired for what was at the time the largest acquisition ever by Microsoft. I was going to say, Microsoft bought a Quantive, right? Was that? Yeah, it was a $6.3 yeah. billion dollar deal. Yeah, it was the largest deal at the time ever by MS. And so um, legendary deal. We were acquired one month after Google had acquired our double click, our competitor DoubleClick for $3 billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Google's management of DoubleClick has allowed DoubleClick to flourish, and um, Microsoft ended up writing off uh, $6 billion and selling Atlas to Facebook. But for us that built Atlas, the special part wasn't what happened post-acquisition and the politics yeah. and so on. It was building a real business that got acquired for $6 billion, yeah. and then whatever happened with Microsoft happened. From there, I didn't want to go back to Microsoft again. I, I did a year or so. Yeah, you did, you did a couple of tours of duty there. <laughs> yeah, so that was like role number four for me. And so I'd already started preparing for the GMAT. Um, and when I got a good score, I'm like, oh, now I can go to business school. And I was already in my 30s. So it was a now or never moment yeah, to go to business yeah. school, right? I was like that and, too. I think I was 29 when I went. So Oh, you were, I, so I was 31 when I went. Okay, yeah. Well, it's not, right. it's not that big of a difference. But yeah. It was no, no, time. but like, you know, I was probably in the top, I don't know, 15%, 10% yeah. in age. Yeah. Um, there, there's a very pronounced bell curve uh, with uh, with age of business school. Uh, it was our common alma mater of Kellogg. Yes. Um, and that's how we first connected back in the day. And so Kellogg was great. And I focused in on venture capital. And so LinkedIn and the web wasn't all that great in 2008, 9, 10. Again, a down economy. And so... I would just research every single VC firm I could find because there were no good lists of VC firms. And then I would read the bios of every partner at the firm and email the one singular partner who I had the most affinity to. And so I would send a very custom email, very personalized, saying, hey, basically, I sent a very professional version of, hey, we have X in common. I think your job is cool. Can we talk? Very smart. um, You're kind of proving you have the skill set to be a VC right there by doing that, you know, like there's a lot of, you got to find good deals and, and finding a job is kind of like finding a deal. Yeah. And building rapport and understanding commonality and how that can help build rapport. So one of those reach outs was to a New York city VC who was a Northwestern alum and who was a co-founder of a company that uh, I competed against when I was at Atlas. He was a co-founder of 24 seven real media. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. that was Jeff judge. Jeff introduced me to Mark Fernandez at Sierra. Mark's admin writes me and says, hey, you know, Mark would be happy to have a call with you. And I do what you're trained to do. Lie. Straight up lie. <laughs> yeah, you know, a call would be great, but I'm, I'm going to be in the Bay Area in two weeks. 
how about we meet in person? That's amazing. Right? Uh, you she said, yes. you got it? Kind of thing? Yeah, she said, yes. I booked my flight. Uh, you know, okay. on a student budget, I need those two weeks to have a cheaper flight. Yeah. And um, I didn't know that Sierra wasn't keen on internships. I didn't know that the founder of Sierra teaches venture capital at Stanford Business School. Um, and naivety was a little bit bliss there. By the end of the conversation with Mark, he he nodded affirmatively to me and he says, let me talk to my partners. Oh, that's so that like, yeah. That and so that's, story. yeah. So that's what led to my internship. Wow. Um, I remember you and I, we had talked about, yeah. talked beforehand about how to have a good conversation with VCs. Yeah. But um, it's also like that, that's just shows you that it is like, it, it. I mean, what he was probably super impressed with, with you was just friendly aggressiveness of like getting in front of him and working your way through the process and make, and getting a meeting with him and then actually delivering and doing a good job of that meeting. I mean, it is literally like, I'm not joking. That is what you do with entrepreneurs. You have to find out a way to get into the best companies. That's all that yeah. matters. And so the little acts of charm or little acts of stick to itiveness is what makes you successful as an investor. Yeah. And one other thing that he told me is that because I'd already, I was already in my thirties, I'd already managed teams. He knew he could take me on for the summer and I wouldn't be much of a burden, right? I already had the maturity, the self-discipline, yeah, yeah. the, the, the personal drive yeah. that he could just let me fly. Yeah, and yeah. shoot, you know, if I failed, what's the worst that could happen? I love it. Um, I love but it. then if I succeeded, great things would happen. Yeah. So I adored that internship and that really brought me some conviction and venture. Um, and from there, I applied for and was selected for the Kaufman Fellows Program. Um, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, what well, it is and so on. Let's the audience a little bit because Kaufman's a pretty big deal in the venture capital world. They also produce a ton of great research, so it's like a it's really helpful to know what the Kaufman Foundation is. Yeah, so there's first there's two divisions to Kaufman. There's the uh, Kaufman in Kansas City, which is focused on entrepreneurship, and there's the Kaufman headquartered in California, in kind of Texas now too with that's focused on venture they both used to be part of the same organization okay. and at some point there was a, a separation yeah. um, but we're still both organizations are still very very closely tied okay. yeah and so for the fellowship that i'm part of which is the venture capital fellowship the way that i describe it to people is to, especially to applicants and my friends who want to learn whether they should apply is simply it's a two-year program where experienced vcs come together once a quarter for three consecutive days of training on how to be the best technology investor they can be. Mm -hmm. To give you an idea of the constituency of a class, I believe the most recent class is approximately 70% partner level or above. Wow, I wouldn't think like a partner level people would be going for training. I, it, yeah. that, that makes sense, you train for other jobs, you know, but that's that's really interesting. Uh, the median age, I believe, is 36 or 37, wow, which means crazy. you have some 25 year olds and you have some 50 something year olds. Yeah. And the, class gels together really nicely. So the yeah. curriculum, two of my favorite elements of the curriculum, one was how to be the best board member you can be. Yeah. Right. Not board membership 101, right? Every, it's assumed that almost everybody in Kaufman has been on multiple boards, has, knows the basics. How can you be the best? Yeah. And then we spent an entire day or so on how to better establish your personal brand and your firm's brand. That's the kind of content that we deal with. I love the board meeting one because you and I both have been in a lot of bad board meetings. So <laughs> like streamlining that, streamlining those conversations and making it more productive, that makes it that makes so much sense to me. Like that, that's yeah. actually like 
it's almost like managerial training for managers, you know, like stuff you need to do and, and to continue to get better. And that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It's, it's a great program. It continues to grow in size. Normally the four uh, get togethers per year, two in the Bay area, one in New York and one international. They do deviate from that quite a bit, but that's uh, the general formula that I've observed. Mm -hmm. And so tremendous, tremendous program. A lot of legends of venture either participated in the program or were mentors yeah. to people who went through the program. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And so yeah, it's it's so good. And that kind of launched you, right? Like you met you made a lot of good contacts through that? Well, I actually the way I was admitted was through what a program that was then called the finalist program, which was an admittance conditional on getting into venture. So while I got admitted in 2009 to Kaufman Fellows conditional on getting to venture, I only got into venture where I accepted a job offer uh, in 2014. Mm. So I had an offer in 2010. My mentor suggested that I turn it down. And so I did. And so it was in 2014 that I joined a venture capital firm and then started Kaufman. And so all the work that I had done from 2008 to 2014 on building my relationships in VC, on building my mentor, like getting mentors and so on, you know, that was, that was all me. And more than that, I'd say that Kaufman is particularly good at providing you with a group of other like-minded people and professionals where there's trust and intimacy. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't help launch a career other than it makes you think differently about your little minute actions, right? Your little minute actions in that board meeting, right? Like what's the example of that? So uh, everything that's discussed in Kaufman is confidential, but this uh, next element has already been discussed publicly. So I'll share it. We had uh, an experienced entrepreneur come in um, who had just recently been removed as CEO or promoted to chairman of his company. And his company was a growing company. Yeah. And the board simply thought that he was not the right person, the right leader to take the company to the next level. And um, at one point we talked about his board and anonymously he said that of the five people on his board for his next company, there's only one that he would want to have again on his next board. And so we dug in on that. And of the five board members, um, one probably didn't have the right overall skills the other four did but only one of those four actually put in the effort oh to okay. try to be helpful yeah to yeah. listen to to care to know the product to know the team you never want to be the middle three right the, the board member who just didn't have the right skills well that's who you are that's how you're born yeah, Fine, yeah, yeah right but if you have all the right skills and aptitudes and you just choose to not put in that extra effort as a board member that's that's not the right spot to be. Yeah, I, there's there are I think maybe maybe there's like a free rider concept in board meetings and maybe in all meetings, but like uh, I, like a lot of stuff I've been to where there's like one or two people driving it, asking the tough questions, and almost like sometimes they're like the bad guy in every meeting, even though they're not really they're not the, not trying to be bad. They're just asking difficult conversations, trying to really help the company. And there's other people, just kind of like human nature, who sit in the meeting and don't really ask those questions or participate to that degree, who are on the board. And they're, it's like I like I, it's kind of like um, 
you know, you, everyone needs to share the responsibility. Everyone needs to share the burden of asking tough questions and, and rising temperatures and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Very much so. One other thing that Kaufman made me feel very comfortable with is as a board member, you don't, you'll often have on the board someone who speaks a lot. Yeah. Right. And that can be you. Great. Yeah. Um, but if that's not your natural inclination, there's nothing wrong with being the person who only speaks a few times. And as long as what you're saying is, is smart and helpful yeah. uh, or, or inquisitive in a smart way, people around the room will respect you and will actually choose to listen to you more than the highly talkative person at times. Yeah, because you're saving your bullets and saving your points. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it's very, very easy to want to outspeak the other person quote unquote, you'll be recognized as the most helpful, the most engaged. And it's important for all board members to recognize that the person who's not as vocal might be just as engaged. Yeah. Right. Might only ask a couple of questions, might be more helpful behind the scenes because most of the good work of a really tremendous board member is not in the board meeting. Yeah. Right. It's it totally. And there's people who are like super defocusing, I think is the other thing I've seen. And sometimes those are like the talkers people talk a lot and I tend to talk a lot and I tend to probably be a little bit defocusing of a personality, but like it's hard for the CEO to run a board meeting and have people being like, what about this over here? What about that over there? Your competitors doing this or da, 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 da. It's, it's really hard to manage all the personalities. And by the way, you work for these people as a CEO. Yeah. And so you need to do it in a very nice way. And Hey, when things like COVID hit, you may have to go to these people and ask for a bridge round which is, no one really wants to do, but they usually do it, you know? So there's a, there's the, the dynamics are really interesting. So I think it's really cool that Kaufman teaches all this training. Like I, I, I learned just from sitting and stuff and I probably could really use that training. It would actually be very helpful. Something else that I picked up on side discussions at Kaufman. So I don't remember it being discussed in the actual group sessions. One, it's a good practice to have a phone call with the CEO before the board yeah. to prep a little bit. Good. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of one-on-one level. But then two questions that I always ask in that phone call in advance of the board meeting. Number one is what is something that you expect one of the other board members to challenge you on? And how can I be helpful with you on that? That's right, so good. building the role playing ahead of time is really yeah. powerful. Uh, it's, it's also building alliance and partnership. And yeah. you know, I yeah, want to be yeah. there for you. Now, of course, if I disagree with you, I'll need to disagree. Yeah. But if I do agree with you, at least I'll be prepped and I'll have time to think about yeah. in advance how I can you know, help facilitate this discussion. Yeah. And then the second question I like to ask is, here's something that I plan to challenge you on. I don't want to catch you off guard. That's yeah. unfair. I actually want you to be thoughtful about it. And so here's a question I plan to ask you. Yeah. I love that because it's also, you're not trying to gotcha them. You really want a thoughtful answer and you want to, you're genuinely curious. So I actually love giving questions to people ahead of time like that. So they can really think about it. I know that I'm not always the best off the cuff thinker as well. Like I, it takes me a little bit of time. So it's just, it's just like a nice thing to do. And I really love the, the offer of like, what's something that someone you expect someone to challenge you on so you can role play with them and, and make them have a better performance in the board meeting, which then instills a lot more confidence, which means it's easier to get more money down the road. And by being someone who's challenging the CEO, you're not just a yes person. Yeah. 
That's quite important. Yeah. And hopefully you build a relationship where you can partner up for multiple startups over decades. Yeah. I, and you build that trust, one, by supporting the CEO when it's appropriate and by challenging the CEO when it's appropriate. And that does those two questions helps establish both. Yeah. You, your point on the timeline, too, and, you know, doing things over multiple decades is so smart because at Lighthouse, I always felt like I really had done a great job when entrepreneur came back to me the next time, like the second company. Mm-hmm. And it really does feel great. Often those are actually more successful anyways, because it's like kind of their second run at things. And at Cruise, we, we get the th- same thing. Like we have all these serial entrepreneurs who, you know, maybe they start a company and sell it, or they end up leaving when it gets so big and they start another company. And it's like always that incredible validation of what a good job you did when they come back and work with you again. I I love it. There's also when we reject an entrepreneur for an investment opportunity, but we do it in the right way. And that entrepreneur sends us some of their closest, most trusted friends who are entrepreneurs. Yeah. And will literally tell you, you're in the first batch of VCs I'm emailing. Yeah. You know, I might not be the one and only, right? But you're in that very first batch. I'm only sending this out to five people. You're one of them and you rejected me. But you did it the right way. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate that. There's a, um, I remember I had like a little lending startup before I joined Cruise. And Josh Koppelman of First Round rejected us in such a thoughtful, amazing way that I'm still talking about him in a podcast like this because he was, his reason for rejecting us was so smart. And he got at the one issue we hadn't figured out how it would work and we were kind of worried. No other rejection was even close to like the quality rejection he is. And first round already been successful, but like I was in that now they've done Uber and a bunch of other stuff and it's amazing. Yeah. But like those that was the moment where I was like, oh my God, this guy's like another level, you know? Yeah. So did he do it by email or over the phone? He did it by email, but like it was yeah. clear he it was like a two page email. Like wow. he really knew what he was talking about. Yeah. So and so he went in great depth. Oh yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. So yeah, the 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 kind rejection and the relationship, I mean it, that can really form the foundation of a relationship. Like you said, it's, it's, that's really cool. And those rejections are risky. And I'll give you an example from, from friends. There's a, the, a famous saying, uh, a parent doesn't want to hear their baby's ugly. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to go in such great depth, uh, you really need to nail it um, because that email could be forwarded. It could be misconstrued. And Josh, it sounds like, he has a great way with words. Uh, and so that helps reduce the likelihood of a negative impact, but still. He also just um, knew the industry really well. So he mm-hmm. knew that's, that's the big one. Yeah. It, you said the word though, it's risky. And so that's what I, that's one of the reasons I appreciated it so much was because it was risky, but he still did it. He still had like the guts to do it and the courtesy to do it and made me better. So yeah, I mean, very little's gained without risk, right? But yeah. He built a so, for life and I've never been able to repay that yet. I guess we work with a bunch of their companies, so we do repay that in a way, but I've never been able to go up to him and say like, Hey man, he blew my mind eight years ago, <laughs> but I will someday. I will. And you know, someone as legendary as Josh, he's probably heard that a million yeah, times. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah. But I'll still tell him, you know, so well, I'm sure cover, every time it makes him feel better. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's cover your sweet spot. So you, you enjoy investing in series a level companies, right? That's kind of your sweet spot. A and B. Yeah, I do seed A and B. Yeah. Um, but then a is in the center of those three. So, yeah. Um, Bell curve it. 
And so a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this podcast. Like what's, what are your, do you have a short list criteria for a good series A? Like I, the, the background for that question is people ask me like literally every day I get someone saying, what do you think I need to do to raise a series A? And it's helpful to be able to point to someone like you and be like, Hey, this is what Lineland thinks. Yeah. So let's break it down into a few different dimensions. One is who you speak with. Every single day I hear from entrepreneurs, Island, I have all the capital I need for my next round. All I need is a lead. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, around a year ago, actually a year ago, I think a year ago yesterday to the date, um, I published an article that lists all the firms with a New York City office who lead rounds at each stage, pre-seed, seed, A, B, C, D. And so first and foremost to the entrepreneur, if you're reaching out to firms that don't invest in your stage, then understand that your time, the value of that time might be questioned. Yeah. Right? From there, you need to look into sectors and so on, but at least there's a quick filter. Yeah. to understand and then also understanding who leads and who follows yeah um well that was the point when you when you set it up like that i was going to say like there's a lot of people who are willing to jump on a hot company and put money into it but that's actually not what you need you actually you need to lead first before you get the follow-on money because i i get that comment a lot quite a bit too of like hey i've got a bunch of capital soft circle that i just need a lead but really in my experience those people don't have as much conviction and so it's actually, it's almost like you have nothing, you have zero until you get the lead. And then, then you really know if people are going to come in or not. That's my, yeah. my humble opinion. So having your prior investors who have pro rider rights committing to do their yeah, pro rider. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. That's a great yeah. total. Discount. But other, other than that, unless there's someone noteworthy or strategic, it's nice. Yeah. Right? Like it's not a negative by, yeah. by any stretch. It's, it's a positive but it's not as much of a positive as it is to say, hey, I have a co-lead ready. Yeah. Um, or my existing investors want to lead the round. And I just want to see if I can get a better deal or I, I want to get a different skill set on my board. So that's yeah. why I'm going yeah. to speak. That's a good one. That's actually a really good one. Yep. In terms of the metrics, there are some firms who have, who have steadfast rules. You know, minimum 100K a month of MRR. I've heard that one a million times. Yeah. And now that number's been increasing. I would never want to be the except, investor. Except if you're like a super hot, amazing or great at sales and then it's not. That's that's what confuses people, I think, sometimes. Like that million dollars of ARR. But then I see companies all the time that don't, aren't even where close, but the concept is so interesting or their track record is so interesting or, or they're just great salespeople that yeah. they can do it with no revenue, you know, or very little revenue. Or they're building technology in a very emerging area. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's say augmented reality. Yeah. Right. Enterprise tools for augmented reality. Yeah. Right. It's hard to hit that revenue target yeah. that quickly. But if you have the right team in place with the right backgrounds and networks and other variables, that could justify. The example I like to use a lot is, can you imagine back in the day, uh, uh, if an investor passed on investing in WhatsApp because WhatsApp didn't hit the revenue target? I know, I know. That's right. That'd be silly. Yeah. You have to yeah. look at what the most important metric is for the company. Yeah. For WhatsApp, the most important metric wasn't revenue, but a lot of B2B and enterprise companies there, not all, but most, the primary target is the revenue, yeah. month over month growth of revenue. Yeah. Um, of course, now with COVID, growth might be a challenge, but pre-COVID, month over month growth, those are important variables to look at. But what is the most important variable? At Atlas Aquantive. When we walked in, 
to the building lobby before going to our office, there was a massive dashboard and there were two numbers that were being tracked. One was what was the peak number of ads that we served in a second and what was the total aggregates ad served that we had served in the history of the company. Oh, wow. And so we knew two things. We knew that as soon as we would hit 100,000 ads served in a second, once we reached six digits, everyone had to stop work if it happened during office hours and probably would because ads, ad serving peaks during business hours. Yeah. Everyone had to stop work and we'd celebrate the rest of the day together. And we would also celebrate every trillionth ad served. Now, we, we were growing the, and scaling the business That's so quickly really that someone, trillion. like yeah. a, every trillionth ad served was happening too quickly. We had to yeah, slow yeah. that down. But um, yeah, like to have, for us, those were the most important metrics. But we all understood that those metrics were proxies to revenue yeah. and to success. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what it tried to do also is that it, it nullified the differences of different types of ads and a different revenue that we get. Yeah. Um, and it also tried to put an equal focus between the sales team, the account management team, the marketing team, the engineering team, right? Where if it had just been revenue, it put too much focus on sales. It brings people together kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if it would have just been a revenue target, then yeah. the focus that's would have been really on the sales great, team. That's such a great point. I hadn't thought about that, but that's really genius. Like ads served means the tech guys did their job and means the salespeople who sold the ads did their job. That's that's a really great point. I like that a lot. It's a question that I often ask startups when they're pitching me, where I frame it as what's a metric that once you hit, everyone stops and celebrates. And a lot of CEOs look at me a little bit strange and then I need to explain the question. Yeah. But then some CEOs smile, they look at me and they're like, here is the number. That's amazing. What do you amazing. think? And I don't need to give any background. Yeah. We're all right on the same wavelength. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. And, and there's that special moment there. It's like, oh, yeah. And that helps define company culture in a way, right? There's many, there are many, many aspects to company culture. That is one of the aspects. Yep. I like that too. And I've found that because we do a lot more goal setting now too and core values. We talk about the core values constantly, which on purpose, like that's, it is part of who we are. But it also really translates to our clients because the clients understand our values and understand what we're trying to do. I'm just kind of curious when a, a Series A startup comes in and you're evaluating them, you've got the goal question. Do you have like a core value question? Like, what are you asking about that? It's it's not a question I ask at every pitch, but it is a question I ask fairly regularly. There is one company where the CEO smiled when I asked about culture. And he said that he makes every single employee read Tony Say's book, Delivering Happiness. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good right? one. Yeah. And so, and new employees must have read the book before the first day on the job. Oh, that's awesome. That's a that's great a screen point. too. If they haven't read it and they show right? up. Yeah. And, and that is establishing culture where even before day one on the job, you get the idea of like, if my CEO asks me, to read this, then it must be important to the culture. And this is how we want to fit in. And this is how I go about fitting in. And of course, when someone joins a company, it's important to both fit in and stand out. And so I think the book does a good job of talking about both. That's that's a really good one. I love it. I love it. So so if you were to summarize your, your guide, like what can I point to in this podcast, the next founder later today that asked me what they need to do to raise a series A, what would you say? Understand your metrics, understand your numbers, understand the growth and how all that aligns with 
one, convincing investors that, that that'll keep on growing, that you're tracking the right metrics for scale, and that that'll be also exciting for your employees yeah, and, uh, and for your potential employees in your recruiting process. That's a great point, too, because people don't often connect raising money to the recruiting process. Like one, one thing we see a lot is people are very focused on raising money as they should be, but then they kind of underestimate how long it's going to take them to convert that capital into actually hiring people and ramping up. And so we, we constantly see companies miss their short-term goals after they raise money because they are not able to actually execute, fa- like shift gears and execute fast enough. Something I love is bootstrap businesses. Um, it doesn't make venture capitalists any money, yeah. <laughs> uh, but fundamentally, it's a great business model that when it succeeds, it, success, it succeeds beautifully. Yeah. The founders are in control of the company. Uh, they get to spread the wealth a little bit more generously with their employees yeah. and key management team. And it's not unusual to hear the CEO and management team of a bootstrap company at some point choose to raise capital, not because they need to, not because it looks good for the IPO market, even though it often does, yeah. but the fact of raising from a top tier firm makes it easier to close uh, hiring candidates yeah, that would otherwise be hard to close because it adds that credibility and it helps get attention from the press and media. Yep, 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 yep. That extra credibility for those two elements, hiring and media, it can go a long way in helping a company succeed. Yeah. And so uh, you do see bootstrap companies, once they're really humming along and they, they encounter those two challenges, they address it. Yeah. And they raise money without needing to dilute themselves yeah. very much because they can, quote unquote, control the terms. Yeah, so tax charging that recently really well. They... They've raised money from Insight after they'd already, they're already profitable and already just rolling. And so that is a good way of doing it. Well, let's, let's spend a few minutes. We've got to wrap up here in a few, but you're in New York. You know New York venture capital market really, really well. What's, what's kind of some of the trends out there? We, I mean, we have a ton of clients out there too. So that's one of the reasons I want to have you on. What, what are you seeing in the venture capital market in New York? So New York City is now an all-vertical city. In contrast to every, a decade every, ago, every when you say all verticals, it means like every market of startup, there's a there that you can compete effectively. Exactly. A decade yeah. ago, New York was about ad tech and fintech. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. Now and then retail because of the fashion houses and stuff like Gilt. We did Gilt yeah. Group at Lighthouse, and that was like, oh wow, they're now they're going to be an e-commerce leader in New York. You know, like you're totally right. Every vertical has plays now. Yep, and so. On the consumer side, there's no doubt that the New York customer is most discriminating and the talent to help a scale a company in consumer is amazing in New York. Yeah. Arguably number one in the world. I don't know where else you would actually go. And on the enterprise side, the Fortune 500, the Fortune 10,000, 20,000, most of them have their either global headquarters or at least North American headquarters here in New York. And so if you want to be, if you're a startup and you want to be selling to the Fortune 10,000, New York's the best city to be. If you want to be recruiting talent and poaching from the Fortune 10,000, New York's the best place to be. I think San Francisco is a great place if you want to be selling your product to the big tech companies, to the fangs. Yeah, yeah. I also think New York has something else going for it, which is the media markets are really strong. And so it's actually easier to get press there in a big way. Like Mm -hmm. you see companies get covered in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or New York Magazine or things like that. So I actually think that's a really big competitive advantage for that market too. 
It really is. And it's not going to stop. Yeah. Right. And the population of New York allows the city to be very diverse professionally in a way that the Bay Area just can't compete. Right. Yeah. So in ordinary times, when you go out for dinner in New York, there will be an investment banker. There will be a marketing person from a pharmaceutical company. There will be a journalist. There's so many different careers in New York. Yeah. I remember when I lived in Seattle before Amazon really grew and you'd be at a party and people would ask you what building you work in, meaning which Microsoft building. It was just assumed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and New York is the exact opposite. Uh, uh, it's almost what field do you work in? So I think that's extraordinary about New York. And then something else in, for a different form of diversity. New York has more startups with a female founder than uh -huh. San Francisco Bay Area does, despite the fact that, and I'm not talking about by percentage, by raw numbers, despite the fact that New York has much fewer startups than the yeah. Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have that edge on diversity too. So we have yeah. the diversity of the, the people, the talent, what areas they come from, and then for young talent. Yep. Yep. The the West Coast has a handful of really, really top tier schools. The Northeast has so many great schools. And now that young talent graduating from those schools doesn't feel obliged to move to the West Coast to build a career in tech. You're totally right. You're totally right. On the on the women or minority founders too, I think that's a really great point. I mean, at Lighthouse we did Guilt, which had a, a female uh, co-founder and um, Rent the Runway was founded by a woman. And in our in our cruise portfolio of clients, there's tons of women founders in New York too. So I, it's 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 really you're making a lot of great points. There's, anyone listening to this is is going to be like, I know where I'm going next. Um, <laughs> well, I've put some thought behind this, and I've published a couple articles, uh, not on Medium, like on well on Medium too, but uh, on large publications, on large large media sites. And the first article I wrote. It was a reaction to a conference that I attended just as an audience member yeah. where there was a 50-something-year-old female VC who said, of course, female entrepreneurs are doing startups in e-commerce and media and fashion. And that made my blood boil because the women that I studied with at Waterloo, the women that I worked with at Microsoft and Aquantiv, they could be the founders of the company that displaces MongoDB. Yeah, or the yeah. next AI company. And, yeah. and so I put in a, a good amount of research where I, re where I looked up who are the most highly successful entrepreneurs who are highly technical women who are co-founders of highly technical companies. Were they all in New York? No, most of them are Bay Area. Oh, okay. um, because to, to have reached that level of success, it generally means to be an older company. And yeah, I was going to say, you, those right. women fought through a lot of, I mean, there's still difficulties, but in Vanessa, our, our founder is a woman too. Yeah. But, you know, to be, a, to be super senior nowadays, you've either had to have been on a rocket ship or been working at it for 25 years, 20 years, yeah. something like that. So. And already there's such a small percentage of computer science and computer engineering grads yeah. who are women. Uh, and so that, that was my focus, was highly technical women. And so the most uh, famous uh, is Diane Green, yeah. who has legit tech VMware jobs. VMware and then Google. Yeah, Google, yeah, yeah, you know, Google, she's very, very senior. But my focus was on founders and co-founders of companies. And she was a co-founder of VMware. Yeah, not too shabby. Uh, no, uh, but we need more. Yeah. I'm pretty – well, I have a daughter. So first of all, we're raising her to be – to be a leader, which is really fun, but you know, her mom's a leader and mom started a company and 
So I think we're, we're, in, I think the next generations, it's not even next generation. Like we're, we're seeing it cruise. We have tons, like the Delta. We, I don't know if you know this, we put out a salary report for startup CEOs and actually the, um, the Delta had closed at every step of the way. Women and men are now getting paid. CEOs are getting paid exactly the same, except I think it was series C still where um, there's still a bias. And, and our thesis was those, there just hasn't been as many women founded companies getting to series C only just because of natural attrition rates and when people are starting companies and in this movement of women entrepreneurs. And so actually, but looking at seed series A, series B, having the pay rates exactly the same was like super encouraging to us. So I think, I think it doesn't mean it's getting easier. It's still hard. And women have to overcome a lot of challenges. And I see it on a daily basis with with Vanessa. But like yeah. the, the trend's going the right way. It's pretty exciting. I was sent the other day a report on salaries and venture capital. And I would say the report was not statistically significant. It's hard to do anything in yeah, yeah, yeah. FBCs. The, the report showed that uh, for equal job titles, and you can always discuss of our people being promoted at the same pace and so on. It's hard to quantify that in, in a simple report. But if you assume that people at the same job level are of equal skill and experience and so on, women's salaries were higher than men's in this in this one report. I'm not saying it's accurate. I, I love yeah. it. Well, hey, let's end on a super positive note like that. Maybe you can uh, tell everyone where they can find you, find you on LinkedIn or how they can reach out if they have a company they should, that want to get funded. Yeah, so my... Personal email, my personal website is www.lylan.com, L-Y-L-A-N. To reach me personally, uh, you can email podcast at lylan.com. And that way there, the email will get automatically categorized. So I know that how you reached me. Um, you could also do cruise consulting at lylan.com if you want. Nice. Um, and that way there will be automatically. works at the, as long as it's in front of at lylan. Yep. That's yep. amazing. And so that automatic categorization really makes my life easier. In terms of you know first thing in the morning which emails do i check also it makes searching very very easy also yeah. uh, so I if, I, if i wanted if i'm like who is that person again who had emailed me about the podcast i can search for it that quickly right two colon podcast I, i've started getting more sophisticated on filtering and uh and it does make a huge amount yep. huge savings that's awesome all right buddy you thank you so much for coming by i really appreciate it and it's great to reconnect and uh and i'm excited for what you're gonna do in the future thanks scott all right man so when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise founders and friends. It's cruise consulting. Founders and friends with your host Scotty Old.